Thank you, Desi. We're singing that old Advent hymn, reminding us the privilege of being together. And uh, we're at a moment now where we're not as together as we want to be, but I want to encourage you, the Michigan Conference is developing a set of guidelines for how we can come back together. And they want every church board to take some time and reflect on the process and come up with a plan that fits their locale. So let's be praying for the Michigan Conference and for all the churches as they anticipate coming back together. I'm hoping by the end of next week to be able to share in an email what our plan will look like. And so if you would remember the processing that will be going on this week, we would be most appreciative. Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. And this morning we're offering them up again as a living sacrifice. So we're asking now, Lord, that you would establish us May we be indeed a light in a dark world. I'm praying, Lord, that you'd make us fragrant. Give us fruit. Uh, Bless Elder Bradshaw as he breaks the bread of life again this evening with Hope Awakens. We pray for all their light gatherings around the globe, especially right now in this hemisphere. And we're asking, Lord, that your spirit would be near to each of us and how we're gathered to all of us. We put our lives in your hands now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a teenager, after giving my heart to Christ, I found myself loving the fellowship of God's people. Uh, I didn't realize how much of a love of the outdoors I had in my, in my heart. I grew up in a little suburb, you could say, of Peoria, Illinois, on a little quarter-acre piece of property. But I joined the Pathfinder Club, and in that experience, I began acquiring confidence to be in the out-of-doors. The problem was, was that one night my mom and dad dropped me off at the Pathfinder Club and we enjoyed our pre-Pathfinder Club meetings, or I should say socializing, and then the end of the meeting came and we enjoyed our post-Pathfinder Club socializing, and then one by one all of my friends' parents started pulling up and taking them away. It was very dark out, we were 20 miles from home, and I can remember as person by person left to where it was only my sister and I. Now, you have to remember, this has been some 40 years ago, and I did not have the perspective of a parent back then. You know, the Bible says, uh, can a mother forget her nursing child? They may forget, but I won't forget. Now, in my mind at that point in time, I thought it was actually possible that my parents had forgotten me, and that I would be spending the night there under the awnings of the Knoxville Avenue Church in Peoria, Illinois, uh, shivering through the cold and worried about what things might come creeping out of the shadows. I didn't think for a moment that that they were on their way anytime soon. It was in the pre-cellular days, so I had no way of calling up and saying, hey, mom, where are you? Hey, dad, where are you? And one by one, even the staff left. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be totally abandoned here. Well, fortunately, it's not easy for a parent to forget their child. And uh, one of the staff members lingered behind long enough, but I still remember it to where it lingers as a fresh memory in my mind. I I can see the entrance to that church, and that's where a light was. And I, it just, when that red Ford pulled up and we got in the car, I don't think I uh, remonstrated with my my father or my mother, but I'll tell you what, being with the ones I felt close to, being secure and cared for meant a lot to me. I did not want to be left behind. Now, we know there's a, a famous series of books with that title, and they're built around the teaching of the secret rapture. 
And this morning, I'd like to make sure we understand how deadly and dangerous that subject matter is. The secret rapture is a new theological construct that was developed within the last hundred years or so, and it's built around a wrong understanding of a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, that somehow God's going to come take his people away at the beginning of seven years of tribulation, which the Bible does not talk about, by the way, and at the end of those seven years, all the rest are going to get on board. So if you're not on for the first trip, you can get on the second trip. And it's a fatal lulling to sleep of God's people's prerogative to know him and those who don't know him to be told they can. And the idea that somehow God whisking all the faithful ones away and startling and waking up everybody else is not in the scripture. Being left behind is a terrible reality. If you've ever been abandoned, if you've ever been rejected, if you've ever been scorned and sat on a shelf and not knowing where your securities come from, it's a terrible, terrible feeling. Now this morning, my message is entitled, uh, The Crisis of the Empty Lamp. And I want you to think about this in light of a parable that is a response to the signs of the times. Jesus sat on the Mount of Olivet looking at the temple and his disciples said, what a magnificent sight. And Jesus said, you know what? The day's coming when it won't be there. It's going to be destroyed. The apostles asked a question that was really two questions in one. They didn't understand that the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem and the signs of the coming of Christ would represent two events. But they asked for and were delivered, yea, we were delivered a knowledge of what these signs would be. Now, it is not my subject matter this morning to look at all the signs, but I want you to show the response to the signs, which are what the three parables of Matthew 25 are about. Take your Bibles and open up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. And what I want to do today is I want to remind you that while we are secure in a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is a readiness for life eternal, and there is a readiness that the world ought to have for the coming of Christ, and there's a role that we are to play. Now, just because my life is hidden Christ doesn't mean the journey with Christ is over. I am to have assurance that I'm a child of God. Growing up, I was a troublesome child at times, but my parents did not disown me in the midst of my perfidy, in the midst of my rebellion at times. I always remained a child of Ron and Jetty Kelly. Their love remained constant for me, and I had the security that I belonged even when I didn't really behave properly. God wants his children to have that same sense of security. But my parents' job, like the job of our Heavenly Father, was to get me ready for a different experience. The experience my parents got me ready for was adulthood, to be a happy and faithful husband, to be a productive citizen. The role that Christ is getting us ready for is to be an ambassador throughout all the universe and all time. Christ is readying us to live in his home, representing him in the celestial universe, and there is a readiness for that work. My life is hidden Christ when I receive him. I'm as saved in that relationship as I'll ever be. And yet each day is a journey with his spirit in which I grow and my readiness and capacity to represent him more fully is growing too. So getting ready to meet Jesus for some is a statement of fear and trepidation. It creates kind of a spiritual stress. 
That's not my intent. It was never Jesus. But if my affections are for the world and someone talks about Jesus and I experience a type of spiritual uncertainty, then let me take that to Jesus and ask him why. And if you need help, come to a pastor, call one of our chaplains, and let's talk about why the coming of Jesus and getting ready for him, ready to meet him, would create stress in your heart and mind. Christ came to give us assurance that we could know that we have eternal life, according to John in his little epistles. And this morning, I want everything I say to be inside the same context. I want you to have assurance in Christ, but if you don't have assurance in Christ, let's give our hearts to Jesus, receive it, and do what he says to do. Matthew 24, verse 42. He says, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Matthew 24 is a descriptor of how we can know when the time is near. Matthew 25 is how to wait while we're looking for the day. Now, the good news about Matthew chapter 25, especially the first parable, is it's really a story of celebration. The bad news about Matthew 25 is that, especially the first 13 verses, is that not everybody is going to participate in the celebration. I'm here today as an ambassador of Christ to make certain that you don't miss out on the celebration that's coming, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, we want to avoid the crisis of the empty lamp. Then the kingdom of heaven, verse 1, Matthew 25, will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say unto you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now that sounds an awful lot like the use of the word alert two times in Matthew 24 from the three verses we read. Now, if something exciting is going to happen and it's positive and someone tells me, pay attention because you don't want to miss out, I'm not waiting in stress in a form of spiritual neuroses where I'm uncertain about what's going to happen. I'm waiting in anticipation of something good. And by the way, seeing Jesus should be the best thing that could happen to us. The bad thing is, is that all of these parables and each of the warnings in Jesus' uh, Matthew 24 discourse reminds us that our carnal heart tracks off course naturally. And there is a paying attention to the path of life and light that's important for us. So here we find in this parable a call to pay attention lest that which we focused our life for is something we miss out on. Ellicott in his 
commentary says this, these parables of Matthew 25 have a common aim, impressing on the disciples the necessity at once of watchfulness and of activity in good. But each has its scene and it has its very distinct scope. This morning, we're focusing on the first of the three parables that are recorded there in Matthew chapter 25. Now, it's important for me to recognize that I know most people came to this sermon not thinking that I'm talking to them. They're not asleep, they're not without a lamp, and nobody's without light. The very nature of our human mind is that we create mentalities of security. We create a mindset that makes us feel comfortable. So part of the preacher's job is to say, make sure that you have on the robe. Make sure that you have oil in your lamp. Make sure that there's light on your path. Some people stay away from church because they don't like the message. But all those that are here this morning, all those that are tuned in live or watching this in a recorded version, have a desire to make a journey with Jesus. But if we start this sermon out, and I don't communicate that I know, that you know, that you don't really need this parable, it's for everybody else, that I'm missing out on a chance to really challenge you right from the very beginning and say, pay attention in case God wants to talk to you here. So I wanna talk about several things out of this parable. I wanna talk about virgins. I wanna talk about lamps, oil, alertness, gathering. I wanna talk about darkness, relationships, and judgment. It's not gonna be that long of a message. We're gonna move through all of these very carefully, but let's start with the virgins. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable, verse one, to 10 virgins. Now, important thing for us to recognize from other parables Jesus taught is that to get into the wedding, you had to be invited and you needed a wedding garment on. Those are invitations by one who alone can make us fit for the celebration. They are statements that are woven with the concepts of righteousness by faith. We don't belong being reunited with God, the church on earth, reunited with our heavenly bridegroom. Those are gifts, they're provided to us. Jesus has called you not because you're fit and not because you're good, but because he loves you. And so the invitation is to the wedding. And in this case, the invitation is even more. It's called to announce that the celebration's going on. That's a responsibility we have. There are some people that are anticipating the celebration without accepting the responsibility that everybody should be invited. Is that you? Are you simply engaging the church to meet your spiritual needs like a spiritual consumer? Or are you recognizing that the privilege of anticipating something good has with it the responsibility of letting as many know as will listen? A virgin is a representation in the Bible of a pure experience with God. And I think sometimes we forget what James 1.27 says, that pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for the widows and the orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now I wanna talk about that for just a minute. God is actually calling us to withdraw our affections and our association from the world unless in associating with the world we can do them some good. The truth of the matter is many in the Christian face of today, including the one I represent, have found themselves embracing the same amusements and entertainments and recreation as the rest of the world. Consequently, their wedding clothes are spotted. Now, I know it's common today, having officiated at many weddings through the years, to show up looking casual, as if it's not a big deal. I know that a wedding is a very important moment. I've presided over one for my, one of my own four children, and I've presided over many others, and I've, I see the parents come. You never see a parent dressed down at a wedding. You might see cousins and friends sitting there in flip-flops and, and uh, island shirts, 
but you don't see the people close to the bride and groom coming looking casual. There's something about, if, I mean, if I went to pull out my suit for my son's wedding and I saw it had a big stain on it, I'd be exceptionally disappointed, embarrassed even. Our wedding clothes are given to us by God, but we're not to sog through the cesspools of this world wearing them thinking everything's going to be okay. There's actually a call for us to take care of what God gave us, which is the privilege of access through this relationship in which he's the initiator and he's the provider. But he gives us the opportunity not to work for our salvation, but to work it out. And in the working out of it, we're not supposed to go to the feeding troughs of the world, to the pagan places of gathering, whether they're virtual or live. We're not supposed to pump it into our ears or flood our eyes with the viewing. So I want everybody to know right from the very beginning that this parable actually represents some assumptions in a starting place for the church of God. And I'm suggesting that today that the church of God has found itself trending in its Babylonian, in in some of the Babylonian mentalities of this age, co-opting music, worship styles, entertainments of a private nature, habits of life that throughout the history of the Protestant Christian church have not been deemed acceptable in precept or practice. And so I'm calling all of us to recognize right from the very beginning, Jesus is assuming that we've entered into a covenant with him where he's redefined all of our life. We're wearing a garment he's provided, but we're taking care as far as it's in his, in his directive and through his power to not sully it with an experience of the world. If you're listening to me this morning or this afternoon or wherever it might be, and God's calling you back to a pure, unadulterated relationship with him, follow him. The Holy Spirit speaks, and if he's been talking to you about something that you've resisted and resented, maybe something you were taught by a teacher, a parent, an authority figure in the past, I'm calling you today to let the Holy Spirit be God, for in the end, the Spirit is a central part of this parable. Some people try to progress without him. They've got the lamp. It's a supposed knowledge of the word, although we're going to talk about that in a minute, but it's not ever taken root, and there really is no fruit like the seed that fell on the stony ground, there's an opportunity to encounter the gospel, but it's not nurtured and tended by a cooperative spirit in the heart of man. In other words, there's an irresponsibility to the experience that finds a bankruptcy when there's nothing that can be done about it. Yes, there are 10 virgins. I want to talk to you about gathering. It would be foolhardy to look at this parable as the first of three and to not recognize it's all about gathering. Ten is an important number when it comes to dealing with the dynamic of Jewish thought. Ten was the amount of people that were needed to establish a synagogue. The priest was not going to enact a formal worship service without ten people there. There are all kinds of dynamics about the number ten, but God has a group. And the interesting thing about this group that's announcing the coming of the bridegroom, is that they're not only gathered themselves, but they're going to an even bigger gathering. Yes, Seventh-day Adventists have been practicing social distancing long before COVID-19. They've quit coming to the Vespers. They've quit coming to the prayer meeting. They've quit coming to the Sabbath school. Oh, they're still going to come to church. There's a vestige. There's a tradition. There's a culture that hasn't totally been rejected. But I'm here to tell you, this parable is all about gathering. It's gathering here in anticipation of gathering over there. And not gathering is going directly against the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews when he said, don't forsake the gathering. 
So if we're going to anticipate the coming of Christ, while I can't get oil from you because that's an experience of God, it's a receiving of the Holy Spirit personally, I can get light from your taper. And the gathering of our group can, can project light in a different way than individual light can burn. Now, when the sun goes down here today, if I was in this place with my one candle, it would be very distinctly seen. The other night I came back from a walk, went with my family. The sun had gone down while we were walking. I had in my hand a orange and black lithium-powered, I guess if you came from Europe, you'd call it a torch. We call it a flashlight with probably 5,000 lumens or candle, uh, candle watts. The truth of the matter is, when we gather our lights together, we project a different impact in dispelling the darkness. It's important that your light shines at home. If you're not a Christian there, you're not a Christian anywhere. It's important that you're a Christian at work. It's important that we gather as Christians to project God's light into an ever-darkening world. This is something I want us to understand as well. The bridegroom comes at midnight. It is the darkest moment. We need to know, especially those of us that have some length of life on us, that all of a sudden God didn't come down to planet Earth and pull the nightshade down on the cultural experience of who we are. Slowly the sun of righteousness has been setting. Slowly the Holy Spirit's being withdrawn from the planet. Slowly the darkness is deepening. And if ever there was a time when we should be gathering, not social distancing, now, I don't want to mix up my metaphor with the, the, the physical realities that are necessary now. When we gather back in this church, we'll be doing some social distancing, but we might be closer to each other with our social distancing than we, before we had the privilege of gathering. Listen, Satan has sought to wound this society and God's churches by separating us. I hope on the backside of COVID-19, we understand that Satan knows that gathering is important for going forward. And God's calling all of us to a new commitment to gathering because it's in those gathering moments that light falls on our path from somebody else that isn't going to fall if you don't come together. So I'm challenging every single person listening to me. I'm challenging you to make a covenant with God and to take the automatic, not so subtle truth that's woven into this and plainly stated by the Apostle Paul, come together come together to pray. Yes, it's going to be awkward for a little bit because really we don't know each other. And yes, your kids are going to be a little bit bored for a little bit because they're, they're used to being stimulated by their devices all the time. Those need to start evaporating and moving out of their lives in the private so that in the public sectors, people become interesting again. God has made us to be engaged mind with mind. There's nothing more exciting than getting to know somebody, but there's also nothing much more awkward and uncomfortable until you cross the threshold where they're not a stranger, but they're a friend. This parable is completely about gathering, and we gather together to announce, and we gather together to anticipate, and someday we're going to gather together in the presence of the living Christ. So friends, I don't care how busy you are. I don't care what degree you're working on. I don't care how important your work is, and it's not about whether I care or not. I'm just an amplifier to what the the Word of God says. And this is clearly a parable of gathering. We find out that five were foolish and five were prudent. We find out that they're all carrying lamps. Now, we know that Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a what? Lamp unto my feet, and it's a light unto my path. So God's Word 
I'm going to relate to it right now as God's written word because this is certainly the undoubted, and, and at least for those that have encountered the living Christ, the indisputable word of God. I'm going to suggest to you that in the same way that there were a number of people, are a number of people listening to me who have not kept their garments, who have not kept their spiritual virginity, they're in love with the world, I'm going to suggest to you also that we can't take for granted that most of the people in the covenant community of God are carrying a lamp. A lot are walking by their own experience. A lot are moving at the whims of their own feelings, their own interests, their own appetites. God's word is to be hidden in our heart. We are certainly to be familiar with this word, but I'm going to suggest to you there's been an ever-growing level of biblical illiteracy inside the ranks of Seventh-day Adventism of which we have been known as people of the book. But I promise you with every succeeding generation, at least of the ones I have known while I'm living, which is about five, that you can see a progression of growing ignorance and what an ugly word ignorance is. You can see a growing progression of ignorance to where the words of Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's not just that they have a theory of the book, it's that they know the author of the book and that the Holy Spirit, who is leading them personally in the word and in communion, in a gathering, is making it real. But do you really know the word of God? Have you ever read it once through? And are you rushing through it with a little soundbite devotional encounter in the morning because you've got too many other important things to do? And what about your kids? Are you modeling to them the priority of the important or are you letting the urgent fill in all the margin of your life to where you've got to rush and hurry through and worship is one of the most frustrating experiences of your family day? I'm calling you, friends, to a different priority system. Because the truth of the matter is, when Christ walks out of the heavenly sanctuary and probation closes, he that is holy will be holy still, and he who is unjust will be unjust still. There will be no second trolley out of earth into heaven. The encounter with Christ will be resplendent with opportunity up until the door of probation closes. But people that are left behind at that moment have left eternal life behind. That's why I'm appealing to you. Some of those things you had as priorities before COVID-19 are not to be priorities on the other side of COVID-19. And if there are families listening to me and you don't have a family schedule that, that ensconces the primacy of what matters most to you, tisk tisk on you with potential eternal consequences associated with it. Why do I not place in my mind and on my schedule an encounter with the living God, whose word was Christ's defense against the devil, will be our assurance in times of trouble, and will be our satisfaction when we look into the eyes of Jesus and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've got a lot of opportunities if you're a Westerner listening to me this morning, because we went through a booming economy. Some of those, some of those opportunities may be gone. But of all the things that need to be done, I must approach unto Christ myself. And the two things of both receiving oil, which is a, according to Zechariah 14, which is an instrument, a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, for me both to have a lamp and have light coming from it requires a personal living encounter with Christ. Now listen, this parable is not only about individual crises. For the five people who don't have oil, but do have a lamp, who have a theory of truth. They might even know what our 28 fundamental beliefs are. For those that have a lamp and they have oil, 
There's light, not only for them, but for all those around them. But there's not just an individual experience here. There are places where whole churches have gone dark. There's but a flickering little glimmer of what was once a blazing light. I think about the power and the strength of the Methodist church, transforming society, transforming the actions of politicians and potentates. I think about churches that were mighty and unstoppable who have abandoned a simple trust in the Word of God and left behind a living experience, and consequently darkness has come in behind, and it's darker than it's ever been before. Yes, indeed, this is a corporate challenge and problem as well as an individual The truth of the matter is, is that the oil that you need, the transformation of your life cannot be affected by another individual in the same way and with the same sourcing as a living encounter with Christ. A theory isn't going to do it. The truth of the matter is, with those 10 virgins all there, they all went through a drowsy moment. They all fell asleep. The difference was, which was not discernible at first, is that some had actually made a purposeful, intentional discovery of a living God, and some had just gone along culturally with the church. But when the crisis came, there were no reservoirs of relationship to draw from, and they wanted the others to give them something that can't be transferred. You know, the thief on the cross who was assured of salvation is an anomaly to the journey that all of the teachers of Scripture call us to. And while Christ could know that man's heart and assure him of eternal salvation, the real appeal is to enter into a living relationship with Christ. And I want to tell you, friends, relationships cannot be compacted into little bitty bits of time. I can't give you in a moment of crisis the confidence I have in a living Savior. I can't give you the trust, the assurance Those things need to come day by day. As the Holy Spirit orchestrates your life, he actually architects the circumstances of your day to where you have to make a decision, and his call is, come up higher, move with me. For some of you, that may have been the recent invitation to take care of the poor in our community and help the neighbor-to-neighbor ministry to go forward. Some people looked at that and said, there's no way to go forward. Some people then went farther and said, it's irresponsible to go forward. I want to tell you when Jesus writes to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 30, verse 21, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. When Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees to go to a country he knew not of, I want to assure you, Abraham represents the goal of all of us, and that is to learn to hear that voice. You cannot learn to hear that voice with a hit and miss encounter with the living God. I want to tell you, I've owned several dogs through the years. My dogs are smarter than some people. I won't put names associated with the people. But I'm here to tell you this. I could come home in the darkness, and even my old dog who couldn't see, who'd who'd put out a strong bark, would know when my voice crossed the distance between me and the car I was in and the house I was coming up to. My dogs knew my voice, even in their decrepancy and their old age. And my voice was enough to settle their concerns. But there are people who have rejected the voice of God, calling them out of convenience into inconvenience, calling them out of security of man-made established security into God-made established security. Just like that widow with the two mites, she had learned to hear God's voice. And even though the church was corrupted in her day, God prompted her, take the step. Just like the widow of Zarephath, God had told her, I'm sending you a prophet, take care of him. And so when Elijah said, could I have a drink of water? And she's on her way to get the water. And he says, would you mind bringing me lunch with that as well? 
She turns around and she says, you know what? I have nothing to offer you. I, I barely have enough for me and my boy. And Elijah doesn't say, I'm letting you off the hook. Elijah says, if you don't mind, if you bring me that lunch, God will take care of you too. These are the inconvenient little stepping stones to a greater confidence and a greater faith. But like the seed that falls on stony ground, there are people who have an interest in the gospel, but it never takes root. And if it takes root, it's choked out by other interests. And we neglect the greatest privilege that ever has been given to man, and that is knowing a living Redeemer. Listen, when God said you'll have no Make no representations of me to bow down to me. If you're going to have a God that isn't going to have a visible presence, he must have a living interaction with you to know that he is real. But if we just go through the movements in a cultural experience, if we just attend church every Sabbath, if we resist the Spirit of God who says, you know what? I want you at that prayer meeting. I want you at that Vespers. I want your children there. You don't know what they're going to absorb. And by the way, they're not your children. They're mine. And I want them there to be educated. I want them to pick up on the beautiful love in that 70-year-old lady that could be their stand-in grandma or that 80-year-old grandpa figure. I want them there to understand the sweet communion of what's coming and when the world allures them into something else to remember what they've left behind. Yes, friends, God is calling us to gather. He wants us to have a lamp that is trimmed and he wants it to be burning because we've encountered him in a living Holy Spirit experience. I need to remind you, friends, as well, that in this parable, there is a moment of judgment. Five are actually left out. They run away to get something they didn't make preparation for. There is a preparation. But as I've been preaching in the seven-part series that preceded this message called Confidence in Crisis, our real spiritual preparation is knowing God. And knowing God will bring underneath it, under the umbrella of that relationship, it will bring every other provision. Many have a profession of God, but he's not in their hearts. They've not made a settled and solid resolution to save him, to be saved by them, and to do what he says. Many are doing what they want in the name of religion, and thus we have a growing spiritual disease of a worldwide proportion of a form of godliness without power. And woe be unto the pastor or the parent or the teacher who says, you know what, there's a vacancy there. Woe be unto the person who holds anybody accountable in this age. But woe be unto the person who is too cowardly and self-centered to not hold somebody accountable and say, you know what, your actions and your words don't line up. Paul would say to the Ephesians, I'm free from the blood of all people, for I've declared unto you the truth of God. Woe be unto the parent. Woe be unto the teacher. Woe be unto the preacher. Woe be unto the, the person that has been merged into your life who fails to do what they should do for fear that they will wound the relationship. Have you never read the scriptures? The wounds of a friend are faithful, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Listen, friends, this parable was designed purposely to bring to the Jews a knowledge of the fact that though they were called, their choosing might put them on the outside of the grand fellowship of the marriage supper of the Lamb. About a year ago, actually just a little over a year ago, I was joining with Pastor Page to help facilitate a mission experience for 100 Michiganders we'd be joining up with 50 people. 
from Indiana, and we would be in El Salvador building churches, doing a medical clinic, a dental clinic, VBS, a variety of things. For months, we were preaching to them the necessity of making sure you come to the buses very early on Thursday morning with all of your proper documentation. Of course, paramount of all of that was a passport. Imagine how I felt when 20 minutes from this church on the way to Chicago to get on our airplane, I thought to myself, where is my passport? And I started searching through my red backpack. All through the years I've played games with people, you might call them cruel, at some moments they probably were where standing at the airport, I'd reach my hand into a good friend's bag and I'd pull their passport out and I'd create a little crisis like this for them. And they'd look around wondering and they'd get desperate and pretty soon I'd, I'd give in and, and end the misery. But for me, this was no game. As I looked around, there was nobody on this bus that was close enough to me to pull that kind of stunt. And as I realized as we were rolling through the little town of Bridgman, I've just created a crisis. There's not enough time for this bus to turn around, and it would appear quite self-serving after I had told them all to be responsible to declare that my irresponsibility is going to get special privilege. So I thought to myself, I'm going to Chicago, but I don't know how I'm going to El Salvador. Fortunately, I was able to call back to the church, and there were several tiers of people making their way to El Salvador. I just happened to be with the first one. That was good news for me. There was more than one trolley out of Berrien Springs that day. My passport, lest you think I had totally abandoned all, all uh, responsibility, was laying squarely on the copy machine where I was making a copy for our trip coordinator. I just happened to walk away from the copier that day and leave it there. I sat in the O'Hare International Airport for several hours, waved goodbye to all my friends that walked through security and made their way into the terminal. And after pulling out my piece of pla plastic and spending some extra money, I eventually joined up with another group. Friends, I'm going to tell you, there's one passport to get you to heaven. His name is Jesus Christ. He's good enough to not only purge your record, but he's good enough to also change your heart. And along the way, he's answering the questions of all of these, all, all these, un, all these holy beings who have never fallen, who are wondering if it's really okay to bring the human back to heaven, knowing that the human was infected with the heart of Satan. Jesus is looking to actually transform us. That's why Jesus will give such stark warnings. That's why Jesus will tell such painful parables. He doesn't want anybody to be left behind. He knows that the carnal heart is wicked beyond all understanding, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says. And he knows that like Paul preached, that after preaching righteousness, anybody can fall away because our safety is in this living relationship. Friends, God is looking to transform our character as we walk in assurance with him. God is calling us as a Seventh-day Adventist people to a faithful enacting of the weightiest trust ever given to a religious group of people. There are five distinct truths at the very end of the Protestant Reformation and, yea, the end of time that he's put in our bosom. And wouldn't the devil like it if he can kick a pile of sticks all over the place so that no fire could be lit? Yes, indeed, we're being called back to a pure relationship with God. We're being called back to a living knowledge of this word. Turn off YouTube. Turn off Roku. Turn off Netflix. Find a simplicity of life that'll turn on an interest in the word of God. Go to the holy 
God up above and pray for the gift he promised to give us, which is the gift of his spirit. And live on the journey of a very personal Savior who's taking you all the way to heaven. And let us not come to a moment when we have a crisis in which we wonder, did I actually choose day by day a crisis that now I cannot get out of? You see, friends, that's why David will say, and Paul will quote him in the book of Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Oh, yes, Satan's tried to separate us with COVID-19. And God says, I'm calling my people back together. I'm appealing to you in the name of the living Christ. You can't get your oil from somebody else, but you could light your taper. And you could cast light on somebody else's path. I'm appealing to you to keep your garments clean through the power of the Holy Spirit obeying Jesus. I'm calling you to a familiarity with the world. I'm calling you to be light in darkness. I'm calling you to gather while people are pursuing their selfish personal interests. I'm calling you to simplify and reprioritize. I'm calling you in the name of Christ to not have a crisis. When all of the men's hearts and women's hearts are failing them for fear, we will not be if we follow the living Savior in that same situation. I'm calling you today. Yes, indeed. There's no doubt. I'm calling you today into some mini crises because you're going to have to tell somebody, I can't do that anymore. And by the way, don't put the church at the top of your list. Tell somebody else in some other organization. The church has been neglected and kicked to the bottom of the barrel too many times. I'm calling you to a mini crisis as you announce to a, a, a family, a spouse, an employer, I'm changing my priorities. I can't work that many hours anymore. I'm going to go for some walks with my kids, and I'm going to read the Bible with them. We're going to simplify our life, and I'm going to give them something better. Since I'm going to take away some of their devices and the wrong feeding troughs of this world's fodder, I've got to give them something better. Yes, I know in this sermon today, I'm calling you to some mini crises because that's how God gets us ready, showing himself faithful so that when the crisis of the empty lamps is upon the church, you can say, Jesus, thank you for keeping my lamp full of oil. Thank you for helping me to trim it and let it burn bright at this dark hour. Yes, I'm calling you to know this dear Jesus in a deeper way than we've known. There is a very Laodicean experience that's come upon us. I am reminding everybody that while nobody needs fear of the judgment, if I march on like a worldling, Fear will be the end experience. I can build a false assurance now, wrongly emphasizing an imbalanced understanding of the plan of salvation, or I can build a true assurance now and embrace all the inconveniences that come with it. And I want to assure you, Jesus will lead you down a very inconvenient life. But it will be a path of peace and power and fruit and fragrance. It will be a path of joy and fulfillment. Yes, friends. I'm calling you now. You need the passport to heaven. You need the living provision of Christ for justification, and you need the living Holy Spirit in you for sanctification. And I'm calling you now to not be afraid of what's coming because the one who's going with you into the future is Christ himself. I'm calling you today to draw near to Jesus without embarrassment. I'm calling you to clean garments, separating from the world, except for when it can be a blessing to them, virtually as well as in physical presence. Yes, I'm calling you to walk with Jesus to be like Jesus, and to let his joy fill your heart. We're going home, friends. We're going to gather again on the other side of COVID-19, and we need to gather in strength like we've never gathered before. 
Go to your church. Get over the idiosyncrasies of the people around you. Love them in spite of their unique, eccentric habits. Learn to understand the story that's made them like they are. Show the world there's a different, better way. Yes, friends, make Jesus real and practical. May God help us all to not come up to the end of time when Christ walks out of the sanctuary and have a crisis of the empty lamps. May we know him, love him, and serve him. And may that be the fullness of our joy. God bless and God be with you.